I want you to think with me this morning for a moment about our Lord Jesus Christ and His ministry upon earth when He was here dealing with the apostles and with men. Last Lord's Day we pointed out that He was the promised Messiah, that He was indeed God incarnate, the one prophesied in the Old Testament who would come and who would be God with us. And that's who He was. He was divine, the very Son of God, dwelling with, walking with men. However, how did people know that? Who knew that this was the Son of God? I mean, to look at Him, to look at Jesus, you couldn't tell that He was God. Despite all these paintings that we see, He did not have a halo around his head. He did not glow, except for one time. When he walked, he was not like off the ground. You could not look at Jesus and know or tell that he was God. In fact, prophesying about our Lord, Isaiah said in chapter 52 that he had no stately form or majesty or appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, you couldn't look at Jesus and go, wow, this is God. There was no way to tell. Most theologians believe that Jesus was not an unusual looking man at all. He did not stand a foot taller than everyone else. He did not, as I say, glow. You could not look at him and tell that this is God incarnate. So, what made Jesus so amazingly popular? Why did throngs of people follow him everywhere he went. We read in the scriptures that when he would be teaching in a house, the whole city was at the door. The place was so crowded. Or when he was walking along, that the crowd was pressing in against him. Why? Why did they follow him? You couldn't look at him and tell that he was God. So why were all of these people following him wherever he went? Well, certainly one reason, if not perhaps the main reason, was all of his mighty miracles. All of the mighty works that he was doing among men that caused such a stir, that caused such news to spread about him all over the region, that people would come to see this man who was healing the sick and the paralyzed, feeding multitudes. They were coming from all over to see this man do these mighty miracles of God. They would come and spend time with him, the scripture tells us, for days at a time. Days on end. 
Jesus would be healing the sick and the lame and then feeding them before they went away. All these mighty miracles. Certainly, that had to be one of the main reasons that people followed Jesus. (laughs) I can't help but think about this. We have, in our day, scholars, and and I'm not going to say anything bad about the scholars right now, who say indeed that Jesus is a historical figure, that he really lived, that he was there in Galilee and obviously changed a lot in the world. Then we have these great lofty liberals who say, yes, 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 he was a historical figure, he lived, he was there, but all the miracles in the Bible are just made up. He didn't really do miracles, because miracles are impossible. You can't heal paralyzed people. You can't raise men from the dead. So the miracles, no, they're they're not possible. Yes, he was there, but the miracles are impossible. If he wasn't doing the miracles, how do you even know he was there? If he wasn't doing the mighty miracles and changing the world, why would we even have a record of him? I do not walk on water. Despite what some of you think. I do not walk on water. I do not heal paralyzed men and tell them to get up and walk and they're able to do so. I have never, ever raised anyone from the dead, ever, physically. And so I can practically and very much assure you that if God tarries and does not come back in 2,000 years, no one will ever know I existed. Why do we know Jesus existed? Because something happened back there in Palestine. The mighty works of God were being performed by this man, Jesus, who was God incarnate. And people followed after him because they were seeing the mighty deeds of God being performed before their very eyes. Remember, it had been a long time. Now, the Jews had Elijah. They had Elisha. They, they knew about miracles. But it had been a long time. And here's one doing again in their midst the mighty miracles of God. So they're following him. Wherever he went, they want to see. They want to see what he's doing. They want to even be a part of it. Maybe they want to be healed. Right? But let me ask you this. After they were healed, people still followed him. We read some of the accounts of the blind men. Don't, you know, go back and show the priests. But but no, they just follow Jesus. They just go with him. They become part of the throng. People who were healed still followed Jesus. And... I can assure you that there were many in those multitudes 
who didn't need to be healed, who were not paralyzed, didn't have withered hands, weren't dead. They were still following Jesus, even though they didn't need to be healed and they weren't healed. They were still following Jesus. Why? The second great reason that I would suggest to you that men follow Jesus is because he gave those downtrodden multitudes hope. He taught them that there is more to life than this world. That there is life after death. And he gave them great hope. And part of that great hope has to do with their sins being forgiven. I remind you that we are looking at this series entitled The Fundamentals of Forgiveness. And uh, we have seen first the essence of forgiveness That is, that we have sins that need to be forgiven. And we're currently considering the existence of forgiveness. And under this, we're looking at what we've called God or Christ's alacrity to forgive. His willingness, His quickness, His eagerness to forgive. And so far, we looked at what we called from the Scriptures that God is depicted in the Scriptures as a God who forgives sin. We saw from four passages, Psalm 103, where it says that He does not deal with us according to our iniquities. Psalm 130, where we saw a declaration of our forgiveness from God. And we saw from Isaiah chapter 1 that he offers to cleanse and make us pure from our sins. And then last Lord's Day, from Ezekiel chapter 18, we saw the promise of life from the God who forgives sins. As we saw from that text that each one of us is responsible for our own sins before God. We will give an account. And if we remain in our sins, it means death. And yet God in contrast to that death, offers life to those who are willing to repent. They will be pardoned. They will be forgiven. And they will have life. Now today, I want to move to our second area under the heading of God's alacrity to forgive sin. And I want to begin today to see not only was this the depiction of God in the Old Testament. It is the declaration of Christ in the New Testament. Christ is seen declaring forgiveness. Now, we're not going to be going in to the whole matter of what it is so much today or in the next few weeks. We will touch on that, but we're just showing you that this was the message of Jesus. His alacrity. His willingness, His eagerness to forgive is seen in the Scriptures. Matthew chapter 6 in your Bibles again. If you would turn there please. Where we will see first forgiveness in the first sermon of Jesus. Commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. I just mentioned to you that here in this text, 
as well as in the next one, we're actually going to find the teaching of forgiveness along with some other truths. It's sort of like tucked right into some other truths that Jesus is teaching. So we have here in Matthew chapter 6, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. Here we have Jesus teaching men to pray. In chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, as we read a little while ago, he gives some of the do's and don'ts. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't pray with meaningless repetition. When you go, go in secret to your Father. Don't do it as a show. The do's and don'ts that he gives to prayer. And then he gives this common familiar text, the Lord's Prayer. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a great passage to understand what we say to God. And we're going into it in our Wednesday evening study. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So here we have our Lord teaching or in response to the question of the disciples, teaching them how to pray. Notice at the end of verse 13, he says, Amen. Need to have that at the end of your prayers, right? But more, more than that, I pointed out that that is technically what many would say, the end of what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. That's why we say amen at the end of our prayers. However, though that may technically be the end in what he says in verse 13, that doesn't mean that what he, what he says next isn't connected. It is certainly connected and related. And this is what I want to focus on from this passage this morning. What he says in verses 14 and 15. As he says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. First of all, I acknowledge that his main point here is that we should be willing to forgive others and that we must forgive others. Certainly, that is what he is teaching in this text, that we should forgive others. If you forgive others their transgressions, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. If you don't forgive others, you will not be forgiven. You must Forgive others. Now, let me just say that in weeks to come, part of this study is going to center on the meaning of what we do in forgiving. Our forgiveness to others. As part of the series, towards the end, we're going to pick up with that. So I'm not going to go into that right now. What I want for us to see for now is the fact that Jesus says these words right in verse 14, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Jesus taught that God forgives sins. If we go no further, what an amazing and wonderful statement 
from our Lord that your Father will forgive your sins. He will forgive you. What a glorious thought that God will forgive your sins. All that we have seen, all that we have talked about, and the reality of our own sin, that we are lawbreakers, that we go against faith, God will forgive your sins. Now, I ask you to look here at this text again. I ask you to look at verse 14. And I thought that it would be good for us at this time to just open up a bit of the meaning of this word, forgive, or even forgiveness. Because I don't know that it, was, it is what you might think it is. The uh, meaning of the Greek word, the root of the Greek word, may not be what you expect or would think that it would be. Atheomai is the Greek word, and basically it comes from the root meaning, let it drop. That doesn't sound like forgiveness. Let it drop. Let it be. Let it pass. It has the thought of even to send one or send it away. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for just a few moments. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is doing a little teaching here in the middle of this chapter, or actually towards the beginning of the chapter, regarding marriage. Look down at verse 10. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. In verse 11, when it speaks of divorce, same word that we're looking at in Matthew chapter 6. And in verse 13, she must not send him away. It is the same word translated forgive in Matthew chapter 6. So let's go back there. Where on earth do you get forgive out of a word that means to send it away or to drop, let it drop, let it be? Where do you get forgive out of that? Well, basically, in verse 13, in this verse, in verse 13, when it speaks of forgive, it means to give up a debt and not demand it to be repaid. Give up a debt, give it up, send it away, and not demand that it be repaid. What are we talking about in terms of our debt to God? It is our sin debt. And so if God lets it drop, sends it away, as far as the east is 
from the West and does not demand that it be repaid, it is what? Forgiven. That's the word. That's what Jesus uses here. It is an interesting choice of words because he, in essence, is repeating what he said in the Lord's Prayer. Look at verse 12. And forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, what is he talking about when he says debts? Forgive our debts? Why would you pray to God and say forgive our debts? Let me ask you, do any of you owe God money? Now, if you haven't been giving in the offering, you do. That's what Malachi says. But do any of you literally, factually owe God money? So the debt being spoken of here is not a financial debt. It is a spiritual debt. And the debt that you and I owe, again, is our sin debt. And so forgive us our sin debt as we forgive others their sins against us. And so he almost uses similar language in verses 14 and 15. If you forgive others their transgressions, here he uses the word transgression instead of debt, but it is a synonym. We have a sin debt, a transgression debt against God. If you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Forgive you what? Your transgressions. So here he is saying that God is willing to forgive your transgressions. God will give up, drop, send away your sin debt to him. That's what Jesus is promising in this passage. Isn't this the amazing grace of God that He would forgive our sin debt. That He would give up our tremendous sin debt that we owe Him. That He would not demand it to be repaid. Drop it. Put it away. As far as the east is from the west. That's the amazing grace of God. You know, some of you have still a huge burden of sin, a huge sin debt. And I can't help but remind you again of that picture that we looked at some weeks ago of Bunyan's pilgrim or Christian with that huge burden of sin on his back. And God says, he'll let it drop. The whole big burden. Fall away, tumble away, and he will not hold it to your account. That's what Jesus is saying. But before we leave this verse, I also want you to think of what else is being said here. As he says, we must forgive. He says, if you forgive others their transgression, your heavenly Father 
will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive you. Let me ask you a question. Are you here today capable of forgiving others their transgressions? Somebody has sinned against you. Somebody has done something wrong against you. Are you able to forgive them? I hope you say yes, especially you parents. You got kids that are always, you know, disobedient. I mean, you don't hold grudges forever. You know, I got some, I got some that did when you were three, you know. You just don't do that. You just don't do that. You forgive. You are capable of forgiving one another. We all are. We all can. And the point is, my point is, our Lord's point is that if we as sinful men can forgive others, how much more will your Father forgive you? Look over the page to chapter 7. See what he says. Chapter 7, verse 11. If you then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? And remember, the prayer, forgive us our debts. You're asking Him. So if you can do it, and we're all sinful. We're all sinful men and women. And we can forgive others their transgressions. How much more will your heavenly Father forgive you if you ask Him? Ask Him. Ask Him. Ask Him to forgive you. And He will. Now, let's look at another text here. We see forgiveness in the first sermon of Jesus. Now let's see forgiveness in the midst of condemnation spoken of by Jesus. I ask you to turn to chapter 12 in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. Forgiveness in the midst of condemnation. Look down to verse 31. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. First of all, let's pick up the context of what Jesus is saying. You guys all remember what the context is, right? What's being said in this chapter may be around or prior to what we just read there in verse 31. And it all begins back in verse 1 of chapter 12. Verse 1 of chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Uh-oh. 
They went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. You know that's going to be trouble right away. And his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. You know what they were doing? If you pick the head of the grain of the wheat, you have to rub it to get the outer shell off of it, the chaff. And then you eat. It's not against the Sabbath to eat, but you you better not be rubbing off the chaff. That's against the law. So they became hungry and they began to eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he goes on to tell them about what David did. But basically, they were accusing him of being a sinner. He was breaking the law. And what is sin? A violation of the law. But you see, that's not God's law. That was the law made up by the Pharisees. And they were indignant that he would dare violate their rules and their regulations. How dare you do what we say you can't do on the Sabbath? That's basically what happens here. And I can't go into all of this, but let's continue on. Look down at verse 8, where he says, For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's going to show them that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue. So he was in the grain field. He goes into the synagogue. And a man was there who had a hand which was withered. And they questioned Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? (laughs) We know the answer to that. Let's see what you say, you who claim to be the Son of God. Anyway, they did that, that they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and pull it out? How much more valuable, then, is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and he was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. You see, they conspiring against him now to destroy him. And why? Because he healed a man. He helped somebody. Far more than taking his sheep out of the pit. He healed a man and made him whole. What a great work. What a wonderful work. What a work of compassion and love. And for this, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him because he did good. But, you see, it was on the Sabbath. And they say you can't heal somebody on the Sabbath, even though they would take their own sheep out of a pit on the Sabbath or lead their ox out to be watered on the Sabbath. They were 
hypocrites, two-faced, actors before men, acting religious, but their hearts were dark before God, and they were the height of wickedness. And they dare accuse Jesus of being a sinner. But it gets worse. Now you look over to chapter 12 and verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Now it doesn't say that this was on the Sabbath. But what happens next may actually have been even worse for the Pharisees to take. And the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? You know that thing, that saying that we often use, a rhetorical question? This is a rhetorical question. They weren't so much asking a question as making a statement. In other words, this is the Messiah. That's what they were saying. And you know how much the Pharisees loved to hear that. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebub, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this very reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, And how did Jesus cast out demons? By the Spirit of God. This too, then, is a rhetorical question. He does cast out demons by the power and Spirit of God. Notice what he says next. Then the kingdom of God has come. All these people who are around teaching that the kingdom of God won't come until some other day when a millennium begins don't seem to understand that Jesus said the kingdom of God starts here and now with me and my followers. But he says that he does cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Then he says in verse 30, He who is not with me is against me, He who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, and the therefore connects back to what happened with the whole event regarding them saying to him, he casts out demons by Beelzebub. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. This is what we commonly refer to as the unpardonable sin. This is Jesus' response to them. That they shall not be forgiven for attributing the work of the Spirit 
the work of God to demons? That's a simple answer. This is a difficult passage. People are always asking about the unpardonable sin. In my life as a pastor, I've had several members over the years come and say that they felt that they had committed the unpardonable sin. If you think you've committed the unpardonable sin, let me simply say, then you didn't. If you're worried about it, you didn't commit it. Because the unpardonable sin, if you ever committed it, would mean you were so hardened, so wicked, so horrible, that you wouldn't care. Now that's a simple answer. There are others who suggest that what Jesus was saying was directed directly at the Pharisees. And that there isn't anyone today who could do what they did. Because they were there witnessing what he was doing. Seeing the mighty works of God that I mentioned in our opening statements. That people were following after Jesus. Seeing all these works of God. All the mighty deeds that he was doing. Witnessing in that and then going, he's a demon. He's doing it by demons. Now none of you are seeing Jesus physically walking among us. And therefore, the suggestion is that none of us are capable of committing the unpardonable sin because we weren't there. Now, that's one answer. There are other answers to what the unpardonable sin is, and I can't really delve into all of them. I will say that it obviously has to do with blaspheming God and suggesting that what the work of God is is done by demons. Now, you know that we in this church attribute only to God the salvation of men. We do not believe in works. We do not believe in salvation by works. We do not believe that you can get to heaven by earning it. And so, therefore, we don't Suggest that you work your way to heaven or anything at all like that. That it is solely by the grace of God that he saves men. And then we read in Ephesians that you are chosen in him from before the foundation of the world. So all of the work of salvation is by God, by his son Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit drawing you to himself. And yet there are some, one in particular, who preached a sermon. Jimmy Swaggart preached a sermon back in the 70s, I believe, called Doctrines of Demons. And he suggested that what I just said to you, that salvation is solely by the work of God, is demonic. And that we believe in doctrines of demons. That, I suggest to you, may well be the unpardonable sin. Now... I won't be dogmatic on that, but we all know what happened to Jimmy Schwaggart. He said that what we believe, that salvation is by God alone, through Christ alone, and the power of the Spirit alone, is doctrines of demons. Because they believe you save yourself. You make a decision. It's all up to you. You have to do it. And you can lose your salvation. And all these things. But they say what we believe is demonic. <laughs> what they believe is demonic. They believe in self-salvation. 
salvation by works. But I digress. This is dealing a little bit with what is called the unpardonable sin. But I want for us to see more than that is what is here in this condemnation of Jesus against these Pharisees. The other side, if you would, of the unpardonable sin. And that is where he says, any sin, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Any sin, any blasphemy even against the Son shall be forgiven people. God will forgive any of your sins. Verse 32, he practically repeats it. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven. Forgiven. Any sin, any blasphemy, even against the Son of God, shall be forgiven. That's sins of all kinds. Even words spoken against God. Think back with me, some of you, and I know that it's the case with myself that when I began to become sensitive to the things of God, I became very sensitive to my own sin. Things that I never even thought about or cared about became very real to me as being sin. And some of the worst things to me, were the things that I may have said against God. Blasphemies against God. And to my shame, I confess that even since I've been saved, that in my life, there have been times when I've gotten angry with God and may have even blasphemed, wondering why God didn't do something or why God did do something. All of us from time to time sin. And for me, the worst sin is anything that I would say against my Savior. Remember we talked about sin being against faith and all of us who have faith still sin. In the light of the grace of God and the mercy of God, sometimes I still sin against God. And it hurts more than anything else. And what Jesus is saying is even those sins are forgiven. Even those worst sins are forgiven. Now, That's great. Hallelujah. But think with me. It has to be true, too. Because we see it right in the Scriptures. Think about Peter. Remember Peter? When Peter was outside, when Jesus was in the trials, he denied that he even knew him with cursing. Three times before the cock crowed. Denied that he knew our Lord and invoked curses. I do not know the man. And then Jesus, in Luke's gospel, I believe, looks at him 
sees him as Jesus was obviously being transferred from one court to another. And he happened to be able to get a look right at Peter. And Peter remembered what he said and went out and wept bitterly. And you know what? His weeping bitterly at that didn't last just a moment. He was deeply upset about that for a long time. And that's why we read at the end chapters of the Gospel of John where he restores Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? But what happened? Peter was forgiven. Even though he blasphemed and invoked curses, Peter was forgiven. Think about the Apostle Paul. Who was the Apostle Paul? What was the Apostle Paul doing? Persecuting the church. Blaspheming against Christ. Killing Christians. And yet God forgave him. Yes, he forgives even the worst of sinners. Even if you speak against God in your youth, in your life, He will forgive. There is, there exists forgiveness for even the worst of sinners. That's the message. Even from this text, sort of in the midst of the condemnation, in the midst of His condemnation of those Pharisees, He shows the existence of forgiveness. Think about what would have happened if Paul wasn't forgiven. <laughs> we wouldn't have these epistles. If Peter wasn't forgiven, his epistles, his bold leadership in the church, the Apostle Paul and all the theology, thank God he forgives sins. Let me just close by saying to some of you, no matter what your sins are, no matter what your sins may be, God May forgive your sins. God will forgive your sins. Some of you may think that you've done too many sins. God will never forgive me. I've just done too much. Too many bad things. You don't know what I've done, preacher. You don't know how bad I am. No, I don't. But I know, based upon the word of our Lord Jesus, that He will forgive your sin. He will. But God takes the worst of sinners and cleanses them, drops their debt. The burden rolls away, puts it away. As far as the east is from the west. In other words, he forgives you of your debt. Oh, is there mercy left for me? With all that I've done. The answer is yes. There's mercy left for you. Your sins, though they are many, may be forgiven according to our gospel. Come to Him. Plead with Him for forgiveness and mercy. And He will forgive you. 
He will cleanse you of your sins. This is the Word of God. Forgiveness exists through Christ. Come to Him and be forgiven. Let's pray.